This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know, this week featuring a fascinating guest, Stuart Eisenstadt, is a longtime advisor, political expert, ambassador, a person who's held an incredible range of roles in the United States government and has done a tremendous amount to advance American interests, but also to promote the broader interests of the Jewish people around the world. I'm actually coming to you this week from Israel, where I am leading a birthright trip in partnership with Israel Free Spirit Birthright, brought a number of students from the University of Maryland and elsewhere through my work at Moor, Maryland, and that's why my schedule is a little bit thrown off for those listening in real time. I'm a little bit delayed from my typical schedule, but I am definitely trying to maintain the weekly release schedule to the best of my ability, even while I travel. In any event, as I mentioned, Stuart Eisenstadt is a fascinating figure with decades of extensive experience, and he's also someone I've seen in the community because his son and family live right down the street from me. So I've observed Stuart at many local events and gotten to see how his personal life has also flourished alongside his incredible work as a public servant. A reminder again to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you may be listening. Help others do the same as well to spread the word and give your friends the gift of a great weekly download automatically to their inbox. Follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. And of course, for comments, questions, or to reach out about prospective speaking engagements, tales of a Jewish podcaster, have me come to your community, your synagogue, your organization, and describe what I've learned from over 100 of the most interesting and inspiring Jewish personalities alive today. You can reach out at JewsYouShouldKnow at gmail.com. And now, to our conversation with longtime American patriot, great public servant, Stuart Eisenstadt. We are here with Stuart Eisenstadt, a longtime official in multiple presidential administrations, an author, an attorney, a person with an incredibly long biographical sketch. In fact, uh, I, I got it sent to me and I would read it on, on air over here, but it would take up the entire <laughs> podcast hour just reading through it. It's so voluminous. So we'll leave it at that and get to the details through his own words. How are you, Stuart? I'm very fine. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Stuart Eisenstadt has a, a sort of a personal connection. I'm, I'm here in my home on North Belgrade Road in Silver Spring, which is also the same street that one of his sons lives on a block away, and the Eisenstadt junior uh, family are a big part of the, uh, the Jewish community where I live. And so I've gotten to see 
the elder Eisenstadt uh, at many occasions and, and wonderful simchas around the community. But in any event, take us back to your uh, early upbringing. Where are you from? What was your childhood like? Where did you, where did you come from? So I was born in Chicago, but grew up in Atlanta uh, in a very traditional home. My father had gotten uh, a very significant Jewish education uh, from uh, a famous uh, rabbi in Atlanta, uh, Rabbi Geffen, Tobias Geffen. The Coca-Cola guy. Yes, he's the the rabbi that actually gave the hecture to Coca-Cola. And there's a funny story about that, which is that they went to him in the 1920s, mind you, for a hecture. And he said, well, in principle, I'd be interested, but I have to know the ingredients. And they said, well, we can't tell you. It's secret. And he said, well, then I can't do it. And he's the only non-Coca-Cola executive who, who knew the secret formula. But on a more serious vein, uh, Rabbi Geffen was his tutor. He learned uh, Talmud, uh, spoke very fluent Yiddish, my father did. And one of the earliest memories that I have, uh, Ari, is that Every Shabbat, every Friday night, my mother, father, and myself, I was an only child, after Shabbat dinner, would go into the den, and he would pull out his chumash, all in Hebrew, with uh, original uh, Rashi interpretations in Rashi's own script. Uh, That is, by the way, the very Bible chumash that I've been sworn in on four times for Senate-confirmed positions. Wow. Uh, and he would read the Parsha of the week, and he would always say, let's see what Rashi has to say about this uh, section. Uh, so this is the home that I grew up in. Uh, and again, my, my father was uh, very scholarly as a lay person. We used to call him, uh, in baseball terms, the pinch hitter. Why? Because... If someone at our synagogue, the Ahavathachim synagogue in uh, Atlanta, uh, who was supposed to read Torah or Haftor suddenly got sick, they knew they could call my father, <laughs> and without any preparation, he could fill in. That's great. Was, um, was Rabbi Feldman around at that point yet in your childhood? Yes, Rabbi Feldman was uh, around. Rabbi Feldman headed the Orthodox uh, synagogue in Atlanta, uh, Beth Jacob. Uh, and in my later years, we became very friendly. In fact, after my uh, late wife came back uh, with myself to Atlanta, we created the Adult Institute of Jewish Education under the Atlanta Bureau of Jewish Education. And Rabbi Feldman, as a esteemed rabbi, taught one of the courses that we had. So we had a very good relationship. And when I come back to Atlanta, his son... Uh, still heads that same. Sure, Rabbi Ilan, sure. And a number of my relatives, the Minsk family, uh, belong there. Uh, I still communicate from time to time with Rabbi Feldman, who made Aliyah. Uh, and he's actually in my book, President Carter of the White House Years, uh, calling me during the administration with advice. Interesting. Well, Rabbi Feldman, you'll be happy to know, was a previous guest on this podcast. I actually visited him at his apartment in Bayat Vagan in Jerusalem and did a live interview there. Um, so that was exciting. I also tell people that he and I attended the exact same graduate school program at Johns Hopkins, 
while while studying at Near Israel Yeshiva, um, both both did graduate degrees in writing, uh, just around fifty or sixty years apart. <laughs> but uh, we may be the only two uh, in the history of that uh, Yeshiva to go to that graduate program. That's so I'd like to have that in common with him. Um, so that's wonderful. You were in Atlanta. I guess this was the Deep South, probably during yes. segregation. Still, it was, and this was also a very important part of my life. Uh, I went to a segregated grammar school and high school. I was all city and honorable mention all American in basketball, but I've always said with a giant asterisk, pre <laughs> But Aria taught me a very important lesson. And that is how easy it is to accept an unjust system unless someone points out the injustice. You simply accept it as it is. Uh, I never played against an African-American team. There were none on our, our team, and you simply accepted life as it was. Uh, the governor of Georgia, when I was growing up, Ernest Vandiver, threatened to do what George Wallace in Alabama did and threatened to close the public schools. My mother was panicked and was looking for private schools to send me to. In the end, he didn't do it. But there was a second piece that I must tell you, and that is that Jews in Atlanta, perhaps remembering the Leo Frank hanging in 1913, kept their head down, by and large, during the civil rights movement. Uh, they did not speak up as they should, and our esteemed rabbi at the Havith Achim, Rabbi Epstein, uh, who was a wonderful rabbi, extraordinarily uh, gifted uh, as a speaker and as a scholar, almost never spoke up about civil rights. The one who did was the reform rabbi, Rabbi Jacob Rothschild at the Temple. And if you know anything about Atlanta or Southern history, the Ku Klux Klan blew up the temple in uh, retaliation for his uh, statements supporting civil rights, supporting integration. Uh, and the famous play and movie, Driving Miss Daisy, has that temple bombing as part of it. So there were real risks in speaking up. I tell you one other memory, uh, and that is I remember my mother taking me to a private lake to swim. In those days, there were Jewish clubs. Uh, there was a, a club that the German Jews from the temple that reformed Jews belonged to, named the Standard Club, and the, the conservative Jews belonged to either the Mayfair or progressive clubs. But on this particular occasion, my mother was taking me to a private uh, lake, and there was a sign outside already saying, no Jews, dogs, or blacks allowed. Uh, going forward to even my undergraduate years at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. So in 1962, when I was a sophomore at a Jewish fraternity, a ZBT, Zeta Beta Tau, on Sundays, the kitchen would close so the chef could, or cook could take a day off. And a fraternity brother, a man from New York, drove me to Howard Johnson's, we called it Hojo's, yep. between Duke and UNC on the Chapel Hill uh, Durham Boulevard. Research, research Triangle. The research train, but there was no research triangle then. And we got out of the parking lot, started to go into Howard Johnson's, and black students from North Carolina Central and Durham were sitting in. It was the beginning of the sit-ins, and I naively said to my fraternity brother from New York, why are they doing that? And he said, what universe do you belong to, Stu? 
They're doing it because they can't get served. Ari, it was like someone lifting a veil from my eyes. I became very active in the civil rights movement and trying to voluntarily desegregate uh, Chapel Hill, the businesses. And I became an advocate for civil rights uh, thereafter in my public life. So this was a very formative period in my life. Another formative period occurred. In I just wanted to ask you, though, until that point, do you think you were unaware? In other words, when well, you were Well, of course, I knew segregation. You simply took it for granted. Yeah. You accepted life as it was. So, so what changed for you then when you saw that sit-in? I mean, you must have known before. These were human beings. These were God's creatures who were not being treated equally. It was an unjust system. And I carried that feeling into my White House years with President Carter in terms of supporting uh, affirmative action and special programs to help African Americans. Um, and I realized also that as a minority, as a Jew, I should have been much more sensitized to the problems of discrimination than I was. You know, at that moment, why do you feel that everything changed? Was it the first time you had seen? No, it wasn't. And I'll get experience. So during our bar mitzvah cycle, a whole group of us belonged to a, a, a Jewish organization, a B'nai B'rith organization called Devoted Sons of Israel. Uh, and we had sports teams and we had meetings and so forth. Now, we had our bar mitzvah cycles at the same time. We would go to the Ahavat Achim, or as we called it, a synagogue, which was then on the south side of the city. We would go to each other's bar mitzvahs. Then we would come back, go to a movie, uh, and then take a bus home. So on this particular Sabbath, Saturday, it's not Shomer Shabbos, I got on the bus, and already there was only one seat left in the all-white section of the bus, which was two-thirds of the bus. And I sat down, and just as I sat down, an elderly black lady laden with shopping bags came on. And every instinct I had was to get up and give her my seat. And I remember thinking to myself, wait a minute, if I do that, I'm violating the segregation laws. I could get arrested, she could get arrested, and I didn't do it. That's been a haunting memory of mine ever since. Mm, that's powerful. And I, I imagine this was the early 60s that we're talking about? This is in the late 50s. Late 50s. Yeah. Now, you stayed in the South for college. And did you know early on that you wanted to go into some kind of the political realm in some way? And what I'm were sure your that I would have been selected as the least likely to get into politics <laughs> in my high school class because... I was shy and retiring, studious, uh, not a you know slap on the back person, as you would expect in politics. Uh, so there were a couple of things that changed my life in that respect. The first was in again in 1962, President John F. Kennedy came to Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, and spoke in Keenan Football Stadium, and challenged my generation to get involved in public service and doing something to help your country. You know, his inaugural ask not what your country can do to you, for you, ask what you can do to your country. It was that sort of a message, and it struck me very, very strongly. I became involved in student government, writing for the Daily Tar Heel, uh, columns on, on the world events. Uh, I applied for and was accepted to a 
internship sponsored by the University of North Carolina in the Congress in the summer of 1963, which was a formative summer. It's when Kennedy's Civil Rights Bill, the Public Accommodations Act, was pending. And spending that summer in Washington was really dramatic. There were five of us from UNC, and uh, we had the sort of chutzpah to say, uh, after hours, we want to try to see every famous person who's crazy enough to spend an hour <laughs> with a bunch of young kids from Chapel Hill. But we found out, and it's been a lesson I've learned ever since, I do that for young people asking advice. We saw people like Dean Adgerson, former Secretary of State, Hale Boggs, who was in the majority leader, Joe Alsop, who was a famous columnist for Washington Post, David Brinkley, a famous uh, reporter uh, and TV uh, reporter. Uh, and that really embedded in me the sense of public service and public life. Did you have any sense of what you wanted to do within that sphere or it was sort of open-ended? Yes. I knew, Ari, that I was not cut out for being an elected official, uh, for going through all that you have to go through for that. Uh, my personality was more on issues and policy. And so I, my first job after Harvard Law School uh, was in the Johnson White House. But even before that, I worked in the Congress in 1963 and 1964. I worked on the policy staff for the Postmaster General, was then a cabinet officer. I worked at the Young Democrats of America and went to my first convention in Atlantic City in 1964. And then in 1965, I went and made my first trip to Israel uh, and to see my grandfather who had made Aliyah at 80 plus. Huh. And this is a wonderful story, if I can divert for a minute. Please. So my grandfather, we have the boat records, came from Russia in 1904 and spoke almost nothing but Yiddish. My father tells a wonderful story that when he, my father, Leo, was growing up, his, his father, Esor, uh, there was a knock on the door and a well-dressed man came to see him. And my grandfather, in sort of pidgin English, talked to him. And my father said, Tati, what, what, what is this all about? What's, what's Moxton? And he said, oh, it's just a salesman. Well, Tati, what is he selling? Stock. What is he selling stock in? Coca-Cola for <laughs> a penny a share. Why didn't you buy it, Tati? And he said, and our kids have said, if we ever had a family logo or an emblem, this saying should be on it. He said, because no one will ever drink colored water. <laughs> uh, but uh, my grandfather, at the age of 80 plus, after his wife, my grandmother, died, told my father, my aunt and uncle, his three kids, that he wanted to make Aliyah, he wanted to die in the Holy Land. And they all said, you know, what are you talking about? This is 1952, four years after the War of Independence. Uh, and he's in his 80s already. We didn't have a, a family that we knew much about. We later learned we did. And he said, no, I want to die in the Holy Land. So in my first trip to Israel, after my first year at Harvard Law School, 1965, I went to see him in an old age home in Peta Tikva, which is a suburb of Tel Aviv. And he was in not a very good state. Of course, then he was in his 90s. Uh, I spoke some Yiddish from my youth, but not that much. His English had deteriorated further, but it was, as you can imagine, an emotional uh, reunion. In fact, he was almost blind, and he heard my voice, and he said, Stuart, Stuart, is that Stuart? 
was really emotional. So I come back, finish Harvard Law School, and then after four years with President Carter, President Prime Minister Begin, because of all I did to help Israel during the Carter administration, invited me and my wife, Fran, to come to Israel in 1981. I've since gone probably 50 times. And I wanted to go, Ari, directly to his gravesite. He died about six months after I saw him. And we went to the small office. I said, I'd like to see the gravesite of my grandfather, Esau Eisenstadt. And it took him about five minutes to find it in his records. There were no computers in those days. And they had their records by burial chronologically. And we knew the rough time, end of 65, beginning of 1966, but not the precise date. So he found it. He took me to the grave site. It was clearly my grandfather's. We put a stones on, said a prayer. And I said to the proprietor of the cemetery, this is my grandfather. I've learned from a relative in Atlanta that it's possible his father, my great-grandfather, might be buried in your cemetery. But all I know is that his name would be Eisenstein. I don't know his first name. I don't know the year, the decade, or the century he's buried. He said immediately, I know exactly where he is. I said, how could that be? It took you five minutes to find my grandfather's grave. He said, did your grandfather have one bad eye? And I said, yes, when he had a small store in Atlanta, there was a robbery and the robber uh, hurt his eye. And he said, well, I remember when your grandfather came, he said, I want to buy a burial plot as close to my father as I can. And there he took me over one row. My son Jay helps keep the stone to this day. Uh, and there was my great-grandfather, Arye Leib Eisenstadt, after whom my father, Leo Arye Leib, was wow. named. 1910 was the date of burial. Now, we've gone to Hebra Kadisha records. We've done everything we can. We cannot find when he came. We know he was buried there in 1910. So what must have happened is that between 1903 and 1905, my grandfather came to Atlanta in 1904. Two cataclysmic events happened to the Jewish community in Russia, in Tsarist Russia. One was the Russo-Japanese War of 1903 to 1905, where the Tsar suddenly thought, wow, Jews are useful. We're going to put them on the front lines in the war, was the Moldovan uh, pogroms. And this sent a chill down the spines of Jews, and many of them went to Israel, to then Palestine, and the United States. And we have the actual boat records of my grandfather's in 1904. So, Ari, he must have gone to the U.S., and my great-grandfather went to Palestine. Huh. Really part of the uh, second Aliyah. Peter Tikva, you can check your records, was the first uh, city. emigration site for... Right. Uh, for Jews, Golda Meir came through there. Uh, and so when I saw my great-grandfather and my grandfather's grave in Israel, you can imagine the emotional attachment that that created to Israel. So I already had, I already had an attachment to my father and, uh, and his Yiddishkeit. But here I was in the Holy Land with my grandfather and great-grandfather's grave. That certainly would forge... Uh, a lifelong bond above all else. So you referenced your work in the Carter administration, and I think that's one of the administrations uh, or one of the roles for which you've been 
most prominently known and which you've written about. How did that come about and what was your, your role therein and, and why was it so central to your professional life? Well, I've just written a book called President Carter of the White House Years. It's gotten wonderful reviews from the New York Times, the Washington Post, conservative publications like the National Review, Moment Magazine, uh, the Times of Israel, and others. So I met uh, Jimmy Carter in the following way. After Harvard Law School, I worked for a year in the Johnson White House, drafting domestic messages for his domestic policy, drafting speeches for congressmen to support his legislation. And when he decided to pull out of the 1968 presidential race, my office in the White House complex was right next to Vice President Humphrey's office. So I got to know all of his staff, senior staff, and they asked if I would become his research director for the 68 campaign against Nixon, which I did. When he lost to Nixon, I went back to Atlanta, clerked with a federal judge, and then made a beeline for the former governor of Georgia, Carl Sanders, who'd been a moderate governor. He couldn't, under the Georgia Constitution, immediately succeed himself, but he could, after a four-year stay out. I told him I was a hometown boy, uh, All-American in basketball, had worked in the Johnson White House and with Humphrey, and would like to volunteer for his campaign. And he was such an odds-on favorite. All the money, all the press. He said, okay, thanks, but, you know, I don't think he had much of an interest. A high school friend of mine, Henry Bauer, said, Stu, you ought to go see a former state senator who's making his second run for governor, he lost in 66, named Jimmy Carter. And I said, Henry, I can't do that. I've already talked to Carl Sanders and told him I'd work for him. He bugged me so much, Ari, that I finally said, okay. (laughs) And I had a meeting, and when I saw Carl Sanders, he was in a sumptuous law office, mahogany, upholstery, you know, double-breasted suits. I went to see Jimmy Carter. It was exactly the opposite. Work boots, khaki pants, metal folding chair with two metal chairs. That was the whole office. Didn't he and describe I, himself I, as, a, as a peanut farmer? Yes. And I said to myself, what am I doing here? It didn't take me a couple of minutes to realize this was somebody special. His intellect, his interest in education and civil rights, in the environment. And I saw him as a bridge between the conservative rural parts of Georgia and the urban parts in Atlanta. But still, I felt like I had this obligation to Carl Sanders. So I thanked him. And then he called me back and said, I want to see you a second time. And it's that time I got I sold, was sold on him. I called Carl Sanders and said, I'm sorry, I can't work for you. I'm sure he didn't spend a second worrying about it. Uh, and I was his policy director, Jimmy Carter's policy director, when he ran for governor and then became his policy director when he ran for president and then his domestic advisor when he was in the White House, but with some special assignments, including the Middle East. I was the official back channel to the Israeli embassy in my uh, position in the White House during the whole peace process. What is the book principally about? in terms of your work in the Carter administration? Is it almost a memoir of your efforts there? I I had a habit from high school and college, which I took in law school at Harvard, which I took into the White House. And that is, I take verbatim notes of every meeting I'm in, every phone call. I I better be careful. (laughs) I have 5,000 pages of notes from the White House. And that plus over 350 interviews 
as well as tons of books, were the basis for the book on President Carter. Uh, it's not a personal memoir, although it certainly talks about my background as well. Uh, but again, it's it's gotten uh, very, very good reviews. Uh, it's very objective, and it's everything, not just domestic, but foreign policy. Uh, the Middle East, I've had four chapters on the Middle East peace process, two on Iran, two on the Soviet Union and the Cold War, uh, human rights, uh, as well as, as domestic and political issues. Interestingly, as a pro-Israel Jew, I think that Carter doesn't have the best rap of, among the pro-Israel community and um, certainly in recent years has been maligned in, in that regard. How do you uh, perceive that whole aspect? So that's a very good question, and let me answer it very candidly. Uh, first, almost all of that reputation comes from a book he wrote 30 years after he left the White House called Apartheid or Peace, uh, about the need for Israel to have a two-state solution. I was horrified by that, and I told him that he ought to change the title. It was not apartheid. Whatever you think about the settlement policy, it's not apartheid. But let's go back to the actual administration, because this is what gets lost. Here's a Deep South president who, through 13 agonizing days and nights at Camp David, 20 drafts of peace agreement, negotiates separately with Prime Minister Menachem Begin of Israel and his team, and Anwar Sadat of Egypt and his team, because, Ari, we put them together the first day and it was like two scorpions in a bottle. He takes them to Gettysburg with Begin on his left and Sadat on his right to show them no more wars, what, what war means. They'd already fought five since 1948. And then at the end of the 13th day, when everybody agreed if it couldn't be done, then we have to go home. Begin comes to Carter's cabin at Camp David, the presidential retreat, and said, Mr. President, I'm very sorry. I can't make any more compromises. I'm going home. I've got an LL plane waiting for me. Please get a White House limousine to take me to Andrews Air Force Base to catch him. The president, realizing if this happened, it would undermine Sadat's historic trip to Jerusalem, it would inflame the radicals in the Middle East, like Assad, father of the current butcher of Damascus. Uh, it would potentially lead to Sadat's own assassination, coming back empty-handed, and it would engulf his own administration in a classic failure. And he had a personal touch. He knew that from reading the CIA profiles that Prime Minister Begin had a great affection for his eight grandchildren. And so, Ari, he had a picture which was taken the first day they came together at Camp David. He made eight copies. He found the names of each of the grandchildren, inscribed it, Jimmy Carter for Peace, hand-delivered them to Begin's cabin. And he saw Begin's lips quiver, his eyes tear. He put his bags down and he said, Mr. President, I'll make one last try. And we had the Camp David Accords. Now, importantly, this gets to the whole rap on Jimmy Carter. Everybody thinks that was the end of it. No, Camp David was a framework for peace, not a binding treaty. It called, Ari, within three months for a binding treaty between Egypt and Israel. Six months go by, no treaty, no agreement. And over the objection of every single one of his advisors, and I'm not exaggerating, Carter travels to the Middle East for shuttle diplomacy to see if he could put it together between Cairo 
in Jerusalem, Jerusalem and Cairo. Again, we get close, but we're not quite there. The last Sunday, he decides he has to go home. Air Force One is at Ben-Gurion Airport, refueled. The airspace is cleared for Air Force One to take off. And Begin calls in the morning, the president's at the King David Hotel in the presidential suite, and says, I'd like to see the president before he leaves. Well, we all thought uh, it's just a courtesy to say, thanks for coming. I'm sorry it didn't work. So the president and Rosalind, the first lady, were just getting dressed. And he said, please entertain the prime minister until Rosalind and I get our things together. And so Begin starts chatting. And he said, you know, boys, the King David Hotel is a famous hotel in Jerusalem. Yes, sir, we know, Mr. Prime Minister. Well, not the reason you think. He said, it's famous because when I headed the Irgun Underground during the British mandate, I blew it up. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to do it as long as the president's here. So he goes up the elevator to the presidential suite. That's where the treaty is reached, right then and there. That treaty has been going on for 40 years, not one even technical violation. It's the greatest thing for Israel's security. They don't have to worry about their whole southern flank. Israel and Egypt are sharing intelligence against radicals. There is a humorous story about the conclusion of that treaty, and that is they come down on the elevator of the historic King David Hotel to announce to the press we have an agreement. The elevator breaks already between floors. The Secret Service has to pull both uh, Begin and President Carter down, but first, and I call it the breach birth of the treaty. <laughs> so that's one thing. Second, Carter championed in the campaign and as president signed into law, the anti-Arab boycott law, which outlawed any U.S. company on criminal charges, if they do, boycotting Israel because of the Arab boycott. That law is still in effect today, and it's still being used. Third, President Carter is the unquestioned father of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. It was my memorandum, along with Bob Lipschutz, a uh, legal counsel, also Jewish, recommending the creation of a presidential commission on the Holocaust headed by Alevi Zell. They recommended to us a museum. Carter approved it got Congress to approve the land, uh, and that's how the museum was born. In addition, he was a great champion of Soviet jury. You don't have to believe, believe me. Read Natan Sharansky's own memoirs. Sharansky, then Anatoly Sharansky, a Soviet refused, said that Jimmy Carter saved my life because he was falsely charged for being a U.S. spy. And in the midst of his trial, he did some, President Carter did something presidents don't do. If an alleged spy is ever arrested, you never make a comment on it because the next guy might really be a spy. President Carter, in the midst of his trial, said this is totally incorrect. He's not an American spy, and Sharansky said it saved his life. But it was not just Sharansky. We doubled the number of Soviet Jews from 25 to 50,000 a year. And then last, and only disclosed for the first time in my book, President Carter, The White House Years, President Carter saved 50,000 Iranian Jews from Ayatollah Khomeini's revolution. And I was directly uh, involved. 
The story br briefly is the following. After our hostages were taken, and by the way, it's almost now the exact 40th anniversary of that, November 4th, 1979, uh, he signed an executive order expelling all Iranians in the United States. And there were tens of thousands, businessmen, students. I got a call from a delegation of young Iranian Jewish students, Sam Kermanian, for example, Isaac Marathi. And they came to see me in my West Wing office and said, uh, if you expel us under this executive order, it's a death sentence to go back to this radical revolution, Islamic revolution. The head of our community, Mr. El Hassani, has just been assassinated and his body has been dragged through the streets of Tehran. And I worked with an interagency group, of eight, 10 agencies, and with President Carter, we worked a system out in which any Iranian Jew or Christian or Baha'i could apply for asylum, and we would sit on those asylum applications until the Shah was returned to his throne, which we knew would never happen, and meaning they could stay. And then we told our embassies and consulates in Europe, if Iranian Jews come out, you must allow them in under an asylum petition. 50,000 Iranian Jews. I've three times been honored in Los Angeles where the biggest part of the community is. This was Jimmy Carter. Jimmy oh. Carter participated in our Pesach Seder just a few days after the 1979 treaty between Egypt and Israel. Can you imagine how emotional that was? Here we are just a few weeks after the treaty between Israel and Egypt. And there's a funny incident there, if I may, came time, as you know, for me to open the door for the prophet Elijah to come in and get up. President and Mrs. Carter there, we did the full Seder, no shortcuts, and he knew it all. And I go to open the front door and the Secret Service grabs me, Ari, and says, you can't open the front door. We've secured the house to protect the president. <laughs> and he was laughing uproariously and negotiated a small opening in the back door of the house for Elijah. It's the only time Elijah's come through the back door of our house. And whether Elijah could penetrate the perimeter, you know. <laughs> That's great. So obviously it's been a long career since the Carter administration. What are some of the things you've been involved in? You, you referenced uh, a deep engagement in uh, advocacy for Holocaust survivors and establishing commissions, which led to the museum and so forth. What have you primarily been involved with? So I've been uh, involved in four separate Senate-confirmed positions under President Clinton, Ambassador of the European Union, Under Secretary of Commerce and International Trade, Under Secretary of State for Economic and Business Affairs, and Deputy Secretary of the Treasury. But with those, which are more than full-time jobs, I can assure you, I also became special representative of President, President Clinton and Secretary of State Albright on Holocaust issues. Now, how did that happen and why? And I want to make a very important point to begin with. When I talked about my work uh, as a back channel for Israel and the Carter administration, helping with uh, the Holocaust Museum and Soviet Jewry, if I were seen as purely a Jewish advocate, just representing the Jewish community, I couldn't have done that. I was an American diplomat. I was an American public servant. I was the domestic advisor to the president, but one who had Jewish values inculcated in me. There's a big difference. So. Fast forward now to the Clinton administration. I'm sitting at my desk in Brussels, 
And I get a call from Richard Holbrook, who became famous for the negotiating the end of the Balkan Wars. He was Assistant Secretary of State for Europe. And he said the following, Edgar Bronfman, the head of the World Jewish Congress, has just come to see Bill and Hillary Clinton. The Cold War has ended. And the re-emerging, tiny though they were, Jewish communities in Eastern Europe don't have the physical structures to regain their religious practices. The cemeteries were either destroyed or nationalized after the war by the communists, destroyed by the Nazis the day schools, the community centers, even the cemeteries. And he said, the president would like you to undertake this that you're in Brussels and you have a feel for these issues. Well, my entire staff in Brussels, the U.S. mission, said, you can't take this. You've got a full-time job as ambassador to the European Union. I went home to Fran and she reminded me of a very formative action that occurred. You remember I said that I started with President Johnson and then worked in the Humphrey campaign. One of my co-workers, Ari, was Arthur Morse, who had just published a path-breaking book called While Six Million Died in 1968. It was the first book using newly declassified archives, which showed what President Roosevelt knew and his senior people about the genocide of the Jews and failed to act on it. And I literally said, he was sitting right next to me, Martha Morris, and we were co-workers. I said to myself, if I ever have a chance to rectify this cloud over a country that had done so much to win the war, but so little to save Jews, I want to do it. And Fran said to me, remember what you said about Arthur Morris. So over the objection of my staff, I took it. Holbrook said, oh, it'll only be a couple of months. Well, it ended up being the entire administration. And I negotiated uh, $8 billion of recoveries, a billion and a quarter against the Swiss banks with the help of Judge Corman, uh, a $5 billion slave labor agreement with German companies and a German government, a billion dollars with Austria, uh, French banks, art restitution. I negotiated what's called the Washington Principles on Nazi Looted Art with 44 countries. We've returned already thousands of artworks uh, that were looted from the Jews. There were 600,000 paintings stolen by the Nazis. Uh, insurance payments for unpaid insurance policies. Why were they unpaid? Because the insurance companies said the premiums weren't paid when people were in Auschwitz. So I got that paid. So this became a very formative part of my life. I carried that into the Obama administration. I was special advisor to Secretary Clinton and Secretary Kerry uh, on Holocaust issues. I negotiated, for example, most recently in 2014, a $60 million agreement with France for the deportation of Jews on the French railway and their spouses and, and heirs. Um, and then in 2009, I was asked by the Jewish Claims Conference, which we created in 1952 after the war, to be the official negotiating body with the German government if on a pro bono basis I would take on the lead of their negotiations. So since 2009, Ari, we've negotiated, I mentioned $8 billion in the Clinton administration, $9 billion of recoveries for improved pensions for survivors, for uh, home care for elderly survivors. So home care workers can come and help with medicines and food and transportation and socialization. When I started in 2009, the entire home care budget worldwide was 34 million euros. It's now next year, 450 million euros. 
So this has been an animating part of my life, along with other things that I've done. Uh, I was the chief negotiator for the Kyoto Global Warming Protocols in the Clinton administration, for example. What's been your most rewarding or enjoyable position outside, uh, imagine, of the of the Holocaust work, which is probably the most personal, but of all these various postings that you've had, what's really stood out? I think the one, without going into the specifics, again, I mentioned the Holocaust work, I did sanctions and negotiations. I think that the most satisfying one, in an ironic way, uh, were two. First, being President Carter's chief domestic advisor. Ari, there's nothing like working in the White House. It's where all the problems of the country and the world, it can't be solved elsewhere. Come. The pressures are enormous. It's like working in a hothouse atmosphere with interest groups pulling on you. But the ability to do good, the ability to make major decisions that influence tens of millions of people is unparalleled. But the second and very close uh, second was being ambassador to the European Union during the Clinton administration. And I'll tell you a reason why. There's something very, very special about representing your country abroad, about being the embodiment of the United States of America in your own persona. When you say something, you're speaking not just for Stu Eisenstadt, you're speaking for the United States of America. And it gave me a perspective of how important American leadership is in Europe and around the world. How much, with all the griping they may make about America, how important it really is. Are you troubled with today's political climate and with perhaps some of the uh, the waning influence of America or the, the changing perception? Troubled. I don't say this as a Democrat, I say it as an American. Uh, during the Carter administration, many of our greatest achievements, helping to lay the foundation for energy independence, the environment, dealing with a whole host of social issues, deregulating gas, uh, natural gas, uh, deregulating the transportation system and democratizing air travel, and much more. And on the foreign side, the Camp David Accords and the Panama Canal Treaty and human rights. We got bipartisan support. The Panama Canal Treaty, Ari, would never have been passed. You have to get two-thirds of the Senate. It was very controversial. If the Republican leader, Howard Baker, hadn't supported it, he put country over party. That's unimaginable in today's polarized environment. Our democracy, which is already unique among other democracies, other democracies are largely parliamentary democracies, where the prime minister heads the ruling party in the parliament and the executive branch. We have a consciously divided system under the constitution with an executive branch, legislative and judicial. If you don't have some willingness to reach bipartisan agreements, then the system freezes. And what's happened in, in our country is there is such polarization that people view compromise as a dirty word. The critical middle, the moderate middle, has collapsed. One party's moved to the left, the Republican party's moved to the right, and no one is willing to cross the aisle, as we say here in Washington, and compromise. The system won't work without it. Number two, abroad, I travel during the Clinton administration when I had all these international posts. But now, today, I travel very widely throughout Europe. I just got back from United Arab Emirates, from Morocco, from Berlin, uh, doing war Holocaust work. And the reputation of the United States is in tatters. 
We're withdrawing from the whole Middle East, cutting troops in northern Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, not providing the kind of leadership to NATO that they look like. The president says, you know, people are freeloaders, the NATO members. So the leadership that the United States had had through Republican and Democratic administrations, bipartisan, from the end of World War II up to this present is totally eroding. It's totally eroding. It's a very dangerous situation because it creates a vacuum, Ari. And just like in physics, physics abhors a vacuum. Something's going to fill it. Well, what's filled it is the Russians, who have now become the major players in Syria, who have a warm water port in Syria. Uh, the Russians are now negotiating with our principal allies in the Arab world, the Saudis and the Egyptians, a civilian nuclear reactor program and arms sales. They're selling missiles to Turkey, a NATO ally. China has come into the vacuum economically with their Belt and Road Initiative. So this vacuum is being filled by the wrong forces and by Iran. Iran is now being given a free hand uh, in, in Syria. We have to depend on the Russians to restrain them. And by the way, the Israelis, who are bombing, and rightly so, their efforts to get a permanent military base in Syria. Is there any hope? What's the way forward? The way forward is to have a new American administration that's willing to reassert the kind of traditional bipartisan foreign policy and leadership, who's willing at home to say, look, we're going to have our differences, but being a political opponent doesn't make you an enemy, who realizes that we have a very unique democracy here of 320 million people already. 16 to 18% Hispanic, 12% African American, 10% Asian American. We're a multilingual, multicultural. We can't pit one group against the other. We have to do this together. We have to come together. I really think there's a desire to do that. So we need a president who tries to pull us together and not pit us against each other, one group against the other. And we need a president who's willing to reassert that traditional leadership. And I can assure you, that the Europeans want us to do so. They know they need the United States. They can't do it alone. Do you see that kind of possibility on the horizon from either side of the aisle? I do. I mean, I think that I'm supporting Vice President Biden. I think he very much believes that. I just came from lunch this very day where he talked about these same issues, about the importance of values, about the importance of bipartisanship, about the importance of reasserting American leadership. Just switching gears a little bit, uh, you've met so, so many people across the board. Who are some of the most interesting people that you've encountered? You mentioned Elie Wiesel, you've mentioned many presidents. Who are the most interesting or inspiring figures that you've had relationships with in your life? Well, I'll name a couple. First, I've had the opportunity of working with several presidents, President Carter, President Johnson, that's, I was a junior aide then, but President Carter on an intimate basis, President Clinton, uh, who's a remarkable politician. He's brilliant. He is a great politician. He loves politics. Uh, I was inspired by my work with President Carter. I was inspired by working with Menachem Begin. I didn't always agree with him on policy, but he was a man of enormous integrity, 
I also got to know Yitzhak Rabin very well. I have a number of photographs here in my office uh, with Prime Minister Rabin. He was a great man, a great general, but also who had a great vision for peace, peace with security. Uh, I, I feel very honored to know him. Uh, and while I don't agree with Bibi Netanyahu on a lot of issues, uh, I've gotten to know him very well as, as well. I share with Dennis, Ambassador Dennis Ross the Jewish People's Policy Institute of Jerusalem. It's a think tank set up by the Jewish Agency 13 years ago to provide advice on strategic issues affecting Israel, the U.S. government, Israel government relationship, and the diaspora Israel relationship. So we meet with the Prime Minister at least once a year for an hour and a half or two to present uh, our reports. Uh, he's a very Im impressive person. Uh, Fritz Mondale, the Vice President under Carter, has, remains to this very day. We talk all the time and a very inspiring person. In the Jewish world, there are several people. Uh, Rabbi Irving Yitz Greenberg, who started Klal. It was really Rabbi Greenberg who encouraged us on a retreat that my late wife and I took uh, from the Atlanta Jewish Federation when we were very young to send our kids to day school, to Jewish day school. Uh, Elie Wiesel is a remarkable person who has a major influence. I just gave an award to his, to his wife uh, for a program called the Self-Help Program, through which most of our Holocaust funds for New York survivors go. Uh, Elie is a fantastic, fantastic person. I was very inspired by Natan Sharansky's courage as a refusenik and then how he resettled in, in, in Israel. Uh, so these are just some of the people who have had a great influence, but, I, but I, I want to get very personal. I think the person that has had the greatest influence on me is my late wife, Fran. She had a great love for Israel. She spent her junior year at Brandeis in Israel. She instilled the love of Israel in our children, Jay and Brian, in uh, me. Uh, she spoke Hebrew. She was involved in many Jewish organizations. And just as I did when I was asked to get involved in the Holocaust work and all my staff in Brussels said no, I could always turn to her for sage advice. She was with me, she sacrificed. When we work in the White House, you know, when you work for government, you don't make butkus. We had two young kids, she went out to work. She always supported me when I was, you have to work ridiculous hours in the White House and in government in general in eight years. She never complained, she was always supported and Fran, really remains a tremendous inspiration in my life. We were married for 45 years before she died prematurely of a stroke. How do you honor her today? We honor her in multiple ways. I created Ed Brandeis, her alma mater, the Fran Eisenstadt Israel Travel Grant Program, which sends five Brandeis students to study in Israel, and I meet with each cohort. I just was there a few weeks ago. They have to report on what they've done. I've met now with five cycles of students. I created at the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee on whose board she sat for 12 years, a program that endows sending uh, over a dozen young adults to help Holocaust victims and other poor people, poor Jews in, in Eastern Europe. My son and I created a scholarship at the Harvard Business School where he went, where Brian went, for a female a woman interested in the nonprofit area, which is what Fran had worked in. I have an annual lecture series at the Havathachim Synagogue in Atlanta. We've had 30 lectures, four Nobel Peace Prize winners, including Elie Wiesel, two Pulitzer Prize winners, two former presidents, two former prime ministers of Israel, 
two Supreme Court justices, two vice presidents, and it's now renamed for Fran. I chair the Defiant Requiem Foundation, which puts on a honoring of the Jewish prisoner course at Theresienstadt through a concert drama. We've done it in 50 places all over the world, including in Jerusalem. And I have a special program in Fran's name in uh, the Defiant Requiem Foundation. And then when I go to Atlanta, which I did already 10 days ago, I always go to the Greenwood Cemetery uh, and to her burial plot. What's left for you? I mean, you're, you're now, I think, in private practice, right? Or in, in, as an attorney at, the, at a large firm, Covington. I am, but I mean, the Covington is very good. They let me do so much of my nonprofit work. So I chair the Defiant Requiem Foundation. I co-chair with Dennis Ross, the Jewish People's Policy Institute in Jerusalem. I'm the uh, long, I was chaired for five years the Iran Task Force of a think tank in Washington called the Atlantic Council. I'm on an extensive book tour for my book, President Carter of the White House years. I write op-ed articles uh, all the time. I've been advising the Biden campaign. Uh, I, I'm on corporate boards. So I managed to stay uh, quite busy. What have you not yet done that you'd still like to accomplish uh, between now and 120? I would like to continue to help Jews in distress. I'm continuing my work even in Berlin just a few weeks ago to do more for Holocaust victims, uh, to do more on Jewish education, Holocaust education, which is abysmal. I set up in uh, with the Prime Minister of Sweden when I was in the Clinton administration, uh, Kurson Persson in Stockholm in January of 2000. The Holocaust Education Task Force then with only six countries. Now there are over 30 that have some form of mandatory Holocaust education. But it's a Shonda that in our own country, which has such decentralized education, only 11 of our 50 states have any form of Holocaust education. Really? And even the states which do have no real curriculum. Teachers don't know how to teach it. So at a time of growing anti-Semitism, of Holocaust denial or Holocaust ignorance by younger generation, I feel very, very strongly about the importance of embedding this into the school system, not just to look back, but to draw lessons on what happens when you let intolerance go unchecked, when good people don't speak up, when they see injustice in the world. Beautiful. And well, a powerful way for us to end. Stuart Eisenstadt, a real fusion of an American patriot and a, and a Jewish patriot. Each of those profiles would be a biography in its own, and, and you really synthesize both roles in, in such a beautiful way. And I'm so grateful that you've honored us by sharing your experiences and a bit of your life story. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, and thank you for having me, Ari. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.